So we go on data, Colin. Data is information and stats that, assuming the methodology is right in collecting it, analyzing it, segmenting it, is indisputable. It doesn't leave room for much gray area. It makes us smarter, it informs decisions. And when we read media reports or accounts on the state of golf, we've all seen the negative headlines, right? Golf, rest in peace, it's engraved in the image of a tombstone. Golf is on the skids, what's golf's savior? It's on the decline. Where's golf's heyday gone? Tiger come back. Do not believe everything you read. Reality is that the current future of golf is alive and well. And it's alive and well, not just for this generation, but for next generations. We all know journalists are out to win Pulitzer Prizes. They exaggerate negativity, controversy, debate. That's what they want to prompt in a public forum. But to the contrary, even I'm the internal pessimist. I'm just brimming with optimism. What people don't know from a sustainability standpoint is golf's everlasting contributions, social, economic, and environmental to society. And it's gone up substantially the past five or so years, and it's not majorly tied to inflation, which is really, really cool. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks for joining us and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. If you'd like to receive our monthly newsletter, please sign up on the Mod Golf Podcast website to receive the latest news relating to the innovative future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Rich Katz, founder and principal of Buffalo Agency. On this episode, Rich will give us an inside look at the forces that shape the future of the golf industry, an industry that he has passionately dedicated his professional life to for over 30 years. So as the principal and founder of Buffalo Agency, I'm going to have Rich tell us what Buffalo Agency is, where the idea came from, and as an entrepreneur, how the agency has grown and transformed over the years. So to get things started and kick us off here, Rich Katz, thanks for taking the time and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Uh, Colin, thanks in advance for the conversation. I look forward to sharing some information that could put the health of golf in, in macro context. There we go. Absolutely. We've met each other on several occasions, Rich, at the PGA show and other golf industry events. You were on the Mod Golf podcast as a previous guest for a short interview at National Golf Day 2018 in Washington, D.C., so I had the pleasure of seeing a small glimpse inside that extensive golf industry mind of yours. We've been talking back and forth for over a year now to get you on as a full episode guest. So here we are. We're finally going to make this happen. Rich, you said during our pre-interview conversation that you want to discuss the state of golf. So I look forward to hearing your insights on that. But before we drill down into that topic, please tell our listeners about Buffalo Agency and all the great things that you do there. Sure, sure, Colin. We have a 55-person fully integrated marketing firm specializing in golf. We focus on the digital, we focus on storytelling, and we're headquartered outside of Washington, D.C. I founded Buffalo as Buffalo Communications back in 2001 as a division of Billy Casper Golf. Right. Billy Casper Golf owns and operates over 150 golf courses, country clubs, and resorts. Recently, we spun off from the parent company to form Buffalo Group, and we have about 60 clients. And our goal is, back with a, a planning and data-driven approach, connect brands and buyers. So we've been pretty successful doing that, probably have a 90% client retention rate. 
And some of our clients are emerging brands and others are established brands like Echo Golf Shoes, Golf Tech. We've represented the LPGA Tour for a long time, Top Golf, Under Armour, USGA, World Golf Foundation, Whistling Straits, Pinehurst Resort, the list goes on and on. And it's a fun journey. It's terrific being an extension of marketing departments, strategizing with CEOs and other industry leaders to grow this game we love. Yeah, and I have to thank you and your hardworking staff that hustles like crazy, and they're great people. And they've approached me on at least half a dozen occasions and made introductions for guests that we've had on the podcast that are right in our wheelhouse. People aligned with the stories we love to tell on the Mod Golf podcast that I've never heard of before. So that's been a great help for me also, Rich. I can tell you are passionate about making connections, and that passion trickles right down through your organization. Before we get into your thoughts on the state of golf here and more about Buffalo Agency, I'd like to hear this. I was looking at your website a couple hours ago and saw this. You don't just take on any company brand or golf personality as a client. You have a rating system called a Brandy Cap, which is a stress test rating system. I love this. So, hey, could you spend a couple of minutes explaining what the Buffalo Agency Brandy Cap is? Sure, sure. So there's... It's a spin on handicap, of course. Uh, It's relatively new, Colin. We rate brands on several factors that play into how they will be received in the marketplace. Right. It's really cool. I I don't want to give too much away, but what I will do is say that there are several brands in the marketplace that really do not they don't really resonate. So if we spell out brandy cap from B all the way to P, we're looking at bravery. So we evaluate on bravery, reputation, authenticity, how nimble, that's the end, nimble. Yep. Does the design look like creatively and otherwise purposefully? Inspiration, content, audience, and personality. Right. And the lower the score, the better. So it's one to five, just like golf. So we dig deep into the past, present, and ideally the future state of brands to see how they stack up engagement-wise. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I I love the spin you put on Handicap with that. You did a great job explaining it. I have them all written out here and wanted to check if you managed to know them all by heart, and you nailed the Brandy Cap. So full points for you, or I guess actually few points for you, as I guess you want as low a score as possible, right? (laughs) So I give you a zero on that. How's that? (laughs) I'll, I'll take a zero any day. There you go. So one thing with Buffalo Agency that you put out there as part of your tagline, and I know that you live and breathe it as a huge fan of golf, Rich, is that you create, celebrate, and share the stories that imply all the positive experiences in the world of golf. But before we get into the state of golf and all the things that we're going to talk about there, can you give us a quick example of how you apply that passion for sharing client and brand stories either recently or in the past couple of years? Sure. Let's take the LPGA Tour, for example. There are so many players on the LPGA Tour who have such fascinating lives off the course. We'll call it a million untold stories. So we see them on TV. They play well. They smile well. They practice like crazy. But some are in the wine business. Some are have the work-life balance of, of parenthood. Some have hobbies like knitting. Some speak eight languages. Those stories are untold, and people are engaged by people. Let's face it. You look at any sport, it all starts with the people who play. Absolutely. Yeah, Colin, without those stories, it's just a bunch of people hitting a, a small white ball in a little hole from far distances. I love this. 
I read about that and I watched some videos created by the Buffalo Studio, which you have set up now. And it's the human-centric side, those human stories that we're all social creatures and we all need to be connected and find commonalities. And these stories that you're putting together capture that. And I know that you're just scratching the surface here on that, Rich. They certainly do that. So yeah, keep going producing those, which I know you will do. And thanks for sharing the LPGA story with us to put that in context. So I know you realize that golf is local, but it's also global. So let's start now with the state of golf. And there are lots of things that you and I want to talk about here. Uh, So let's start about the sustainability of golf participation of where it is and where it could go. And some of the people in the industry are freaking out saying that golf is dying, even though it's just changing. It's transforming or evolving is the way that I like to describe it. So I'd like to hear your thoughts first on what you think about the sustainability of golf participation. Sure. So we go on data, Colin. Data is information and stats that, assuming the methodology is right, and collecting it, analyzing it, segmenting it, is indisputable. It doesn't leave room for much gray area. It makes us smarter. It informs decisions. And when we read media reports or accounts on the state of golf, we've all seen the negative headlines, right? Golf, rest in peace. It's engraved in the image of a tombstone. Golf is on the skids. What's golf's savior? It's on the decline. Where's golf's heyday gone? Tiger, come back. Do not believe everything you read. Reality is that the current future of golf is alive and well. And it's alive and well, not just for this generation, but for next generations. We all know journalists are out to win Pulitzer Prizes. They exaggerate negativity, controversy, debate. That's what they want to prompt in a public forum. (laughs) But to the contrary, even I'm the internal pessimist. I'm just brimming with optimism and all lies in the data. So what people don't know from a sustainability standpoint is golf's everlasting contributions, social, economic, and environmental to society. And it's gone up substantially the past five or so years. And it's not majorly tied to inflation, which is really, really cool. So if we look at participation, like you started on this conversation, it's gone up year over year. Right. If we look at on-course golfers, in 2017, it was 23.8 million here in the U.S. And we're only talking about domestic. In 2018, it's 24.2 million. So that's 400,000 to the plus side. So golf is also undertaking a new metric, and that's off-course participants. Off-course participants include the following, golf entertainment venues like Topgolf, indoor simulators like Golf Zone, and range and practice facilities. Yes. And that's at 9.3 million here in the U.S. So if we add 9.3 million to 24.2 million on course, you're looking at 33.5 million, and that eclipses 2017 numbers, which are 32.1 million. So fret not, America. <laughs> We're on the last. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those stats you just shared definitely point to a year-by-year rise in golf participation. So with the on-course participation, if the math in my head is correct, you said about 400,000 on top of the 23 million. So that's about 8% growth right there from 2017 to 2018. And even greater year to year with those numbers there with on-course plus off-course. And I think in my head again, that would be about, about what, 12, 13% growth rate already, which is super encouraging. Yeah, like you said, Rich, the, the data doesn't lie, which is a great sign. 
What's even more encouraging, Colin, is if you look at committed or, or dedicated golfers, you're looking at about 50% or thereabout are dedicated. That means golfers with high avidity. Another 30% are highly dedicated. That's your most frequent players. So you're looking at about 80% of the population is dedicated or committed. I'm not talking about committed to an asylum, just committed <laughs> to playing often right. and really showing a desire to improve, which is cool. So it goes from break 90 to maintaining a handicap, purchasing clubs, and it's a trickle effect across the economic strata of golf. From a sustainability standpoint, there are two other big factors, right? One is beginners. We're looking at about 2.6, 2.7 million beginners, meaning they picked up a club for the first time this year, or make that 2018. Women comprise about 31% of beginners, yes. and then 62% are less than 35 years old. So if we look at the millennial effect, and I, I love the millennial effect because what that does is that indicates lifetime value of golf, and golfers is really strong. One in four millennials who pick up a club for the first time, and we're talking about the 18 to 34-year-old set, one in four are hooked. It's about $5 billion worth of spend, 6 million rounds played by millennials. It is really cool to see acquisition of golfers outstrip attrition because no one's getting any younger. So that is very encouraging. The other is latent demand. And this is something that I really think is the next coming of golf. So Colin, how many millions do you think, millions of people in America, do you think have checked the box and says, I'm very interested in picking up a club for the first time? I'm going to say, so we're not counting the people who are already playing. We're talking about, let's say, soon-to-be golfers or people currently refusing to try golf. We're talking about that cashman, right? All right. So I'm going to say 70 million. You're, you're super duper high. Okay. Okay. See, I, I'm the internal optimist. So I'll pull that number way back and say 11 million. It's 15 million, almost 15 million. There you go. And that's the pipeline of golf. And I think that is a statistic that is massive. It's going to preserve golf's good standing. It's going to keep making golfers better because they're going to be pushed by younger people. And the conversion rate of the latent demand is about 80% from what we understand. Mm -hmm. So do that math, and you're looking at a very vital golf industry moving forward. Yeah, I like when you talk about the latent demand, and we do discuss that in a slightly different way here on the podcast. And a couple of months ago, I had the co-author of Blue Ocean Strategy on as a guest. So talking about latent demand as far as discovering non-customers in an industry, and we talked at length about the golf industry, citing Top Golf as one example, but others also that are not looking to compete for the 20 million or so existing recreational players that are on traditional 18-hole golf courses, looking instead of that latent demand that you're touching on and bringing new people to the game and aligning with lifestyle and sports and other activities that people already enjoy and pulling the best elements of those, whether it's entertainment and hospitality, combined with the best features of golf. And that is the gateway to get them into the game. As you know, Rich, and you've been in it a lot longer than I have, you go from not playing golf at all, intimidated, not feeling welcome or invited, to then all of a sudden you have a driver in your hands on the first tee with dozens of people around on the patio. It's a frightening proposition. And non-golfers will say, there's absolutely no way I'm going to do that. So by unlocking the underserved markets of women, younger people, ethnic minorities, the LBGTQ community, 
African-American and Latino communities and welcoming them into the game is a massive business opportunity. You're right. Golf has never been diverse. And the beauty of it is we look at the stats from last year and we got clobbered by weather. Yeah. So despite Mother Nature's wrath, golf is in pretty good shape. And if, if I may, Colin, since you're a Canadian, my roots are Canadian, Canada's in pretty good shape as well. It really is, yeah. Well, it's it's the third largest market in terms of number of golf courses, just over 2,600. The U.S. is obviously first, Japan second. But we're looking at about 5.7, 5.8 million golfers in Canada, about 6 million rounds. And we all know in the summer, from a per capita standpoint, I mean, golf courses are packed. So so that's been up for about 1%. So we're looking at about 21% of the population in Canada plays golf. And that's number one. 84% are about public golf. There's an economic impact of about $15 billion. The pipeline is strong. Canada has a future links program. I think there are over 80,000 juniors and almost 3,500 schools. And then ready for this, Colin, I know it's going to be hard to believe. You, you and I have talked before. We're both huge hockey fans. There are more golfers than hockey players by 2X in Canada. That's hard to believe, but that's what the data shows. It really is. And I was not even aware of that until I had Lawrence Applebaum, CEO of Golf Canada, tell me that exact stat a couple of weeks ago. But it makes complete sense, as you very well know, Rich. Golf is a sport that you can play from the age of three to really 103 if you're still able to get out. Whereas hockey, you certainly can't do that. I play competitively as a kid and a teenager, but you do age out even though you can play in adult beer leagues. But ultimately, if we draw a graph over time, participation spikes between the age of 8 and 18, whereas golf participation keeps increasing as people get older. Well, what keeps golfers playing is the same thing that pushes golfers out of the game. I look at tennis, for example. The dimensions of a tennis court are the same thing. You can play on asphalt, you can play on clay, you can play in Wimbledon on grass. So so that's a point of uh, differentiation from court to court. You look at hockey, as much as we love it, Colin, it's the same dimensions. Basketball, we talked about tonight's Raptors game. Basketball is 93 feet from end line to end line. Uh, but if you look at golf, every golf course is different. Yep. Football has Mother Nature's elements. Baseball has Mother Nature's elements, rugby and so forth. But every course is different. And that's the allure. It also is one of the difficulties to keep people in the game. So if we keep promoting programs that make golfers better, we keep ushering in technology that makes golfers better, they're going to get the bug because their scores are going to go down and they're going to play more frequently. Yep. That's exactly where golf is headed. Absolutely. And that touches on the next topic I wanted to talk about and hear your thoughts on growth areas in the game and the industry. And perhaps combine that with the work you've done and the positive impact on what is an $84 billion a year industry in the U.S. Sure. So the goal is to get younger folks involved. The younger they're in the game, the more energy they have, the less life interrupts them. So stats show the earlier you start, the greater the stickiness. And the industry is doing a terrific job. Let's look at LPGA, USGA, girls golf. That's introduced about 70,000 girls to the game. The LPGA Women's Network is engaging about 130,000 women annually. That's very broad. You look at the first T program, it's in more than 10,000 elementary schools, yeah. something along the lines of 220,000 high school boys and girls playing competitive golf. And you look at PGA Junior League, which is terrific. That's ages seven and higher. It's about 42,000 boys and girls. And then there's an upstart to just watch out for. It's called short golf. And short golf gets people from age zero to age six 
it's a feeder market for PGA Junior League. Right. And then if we look at the LPGA even more, you look at an Invite Her campaign that's designed to encourage golfers to invite the women in their lives to join them on the course. And that is really, really catching fire. There are female-friendly programs, Get Golf Ready is one of them, and leveraging golf as a tool for women to expand their personal, professional, and social lives. I got to hand it to Mike Wan and, and the LPGA Tour, Jane Geddes, for really pushing that initiative. Mm-hmm. And that is tied in also with We Are Golf. And I know that you collaborate with them, Rich, regarding the diversity and inclusion side of golf. You're a numbers and data-driven guy as part of what you do. So is there any data yet that they've captured with the hashtag #InviteHer campaign, which they have been promoting for about a year now? Have you been able to measure the impact of the campaign with any conversion rates for women who previously never considered picking up a club? Just getting past the anecdotal side, are there any numbers you can share with us? Uh, I'm not covering up anything, but stay tuned. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, you'll have to come back on the podcast again in another six or 12 months so you can share all that information once you have a more robust data set there, Rich. So I look forward to that. Okay. I know that one of the other topics you wanted to talk about is the tiger effect. So not just the positive side, but there are some downsides to this also with regards to growing the game. So, hey, please share your thoughts on what you think about the tiger effect on golf. Sure. So when when Tiger really came about last year during the Tour Championship, we'll just take this little microcosm. And I'm not even talking about the Masters one. Let's, let's go back to Q3 of last year. Tour Championship final round, third best TV ratings in 2018. And obviously, the Masters is number one. We're looking at over a 200% rise over 2017 viewership, almost 570% greater streaming on NBC platforms than the previous year. PGA Championship ratings, nine-year high. Tiger sponsor Bridgestone Golf. Web traffic was up 500% the week after Tiger's win. PGA Tour Super Soar sold out on all Nike Springs men apparel. Tiger Woods hats were up over 500%. A Kushnet stock was up 21% in Q2, 11% revenue gain. Callaway earnings were up. Immediate PGA European Tour sponsor interest. It is unreal. So if we go back to Tiger's heyday, when a lot of golf courses were built because Tiger's impact, man, this could be a second coming. Now, to play devil's advocate, do you think there's concern that holding Tiger up as the savior of golf could be detrimental to attracting new participants to the game? For the last five years, golf growth has definitely been trending upward, and it's not just one silver bullet solution that has led to its growth. There's been community building and technology, off-course and immersive entertainment experiences to make golf more relevant and align more with contemporary lifestyles. So I have this concern, so I'll put this question to you. Do you think people in the golf industry will focus too much on Tiger's newfound success and forget about all the hard work done that has been crucially necessary to put golf in the good position that it is right now? That perhaps golf industry players will become complacent and take their foot off the gas in other areas to help grow the game? You don't build it and it just comes. It doesn't happen by accident. Yeah. If you look at, for example, the National Golf Foundation does a survey frequently. Why do golfers choose one golf course over the other? Well, number one, it's course conditions. And the GCSAA has best management practices that allows its superintendents to thrive. Number two is playability. And golf courses are being designed and renovated for mixed couples, not Fred couples. And then personal service is next. And golf's born from the hospitality industry, so that's always been high. And then price is left out of the equation if you nail all three. 
Now, you look at Golf Tech, for example. Golf Tech has over 200 retail centers around the world. Yeah. Its global network and teaching methodologies help shave an average of seven strokes off golfers' games. That's not the only one that's really thriving and accessible. You look at app downloads, for example. You look at game improvement. Game improvement, for example, 64% of golfers watch instructional videos. The more you watch, the more you absorb, the more you practically apply, the better you play. 47% of you use a launch monitor, 22% of you use an encore stat tracker, 70% of you use a golf simulator. That just blew my mind. And 50% of all players use a rangefinder. All in all, tech usage is up almost 90% from five years ago. Yeah. And golf is more accessible and, and easier to reserve tee times, to consume golf tournaments, to measure yardages, manage games, receive golf news, golf video games, virtual and otherwise, instruction. It's unbelievable how technology is making golf easier to access and how technology is making better golfers out of those that are scratch all the way to those who just wail at it for the first time. Yeah. Believe me, I wish 25 or 30 years ago that all the content we have access to now, like YouTube golf instruction videos, were available to see the right way to swing a golf club before even taking a lesson at a place like Golf Tech. Because I hate to say I'm still working to remove those 30,000 bad swings and bad habits that have crept into my golf game as a result of not taking lessons. And now I'm slowly removing those. But joking aside, that having access to all these instructional resources from the very beginning and the level of training content you can watch for free is really phenomenal and it really helps bring more people in by making golf more enjoyable and fun. Well, you know, Colin, there there are some uh, golf techs in Vancouver. You play your cards right. I'll hook you up. Well, they're actually very kind to me. They've already hooked me up at the local golf tech here in Vancouver, and I spend a bit of time there. So I'm locked in, but thanks for the offer there, Rich. Perhaps you can hook me up with something else next time we get together. Bring it on. Yeah, we'll figure all that stuff out. So yeah, with the Tiger Effect, and that's just one of those things back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that 10-year period. And that was the boom period, you know, Rich, for building golf courses, both public and private. And the whole fascination with longer is better, and let's make all the new courses over 7,000 yards long. I'm stuck at an 18 handicap and probably won't be getting any better since I don't play or practice as much as I'd like to now that I'm in the golf industry. And I was warned that I would give up my golf game once I became part of it. And sadly, that's kind of true. So with all the golf courses that were quickly built, as you know, then there were course closures because whether it's an example of Darwinian selection, supply outstripped demand. I believe you hold the opinion that golf course closures are actually a good thing for maintaining the health and vitality of the sport and industry. So please share your thoughts with us on that. Well, the rubber meets the road with respect to golf course operators. And I actually see golf course closures as a good thing. It's merely a supply demand correction. It doesn't mean people are playing fewer rounds. It's just, it's less diluted distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had more to say on that topic, but it also led to price compression in certain DMAs, and that was a bad thing. Yes, yes. And I did not know much about the online tea time booking industry and how it works. I thought it would be great for the golf industry from what I understood, but the fact with the pricing where golf course owners and operators don't have control in most cases, that it was not a positive situation with the prices being driven down and the discounts on rounds negatively impacting the revenue streams. 
And if you look at golf now, for example, I, I think golf now is largely terrific. It's like open table for golf. Right. If we look at millennials, for example, which is the future of golf and, and the socialization of, of millennials, 45% prefer to connect with golf businesses through social media. Yep. And 51% indicate social connections with golf businesses increase their loyalty of spend. And 80% say email still resonates. So golf is doing the right thing by getting younger to attract the younger. I do not think it has anything to do with course closures. I do not think it will lead to substantial price compression. It just leads to greater access and people consuming information, invitations, offers through the channels that are more modern day. So golf is adapting. It's getting more contemporary. Yeah, absolutely. And a younger audience, millennials and the generation following them, they're demanding engaging experiences. It really is the experience economy. From some of the research I've done over the last year with millennials, they spend four times as much money on experiences as they did on material goods. And that ratio is only going to increase. So with that relating to golf, the approach to service design and customer experience, the paying public is becoming more and more demanding. Golf has to become a frictionless experience across all the touch points, and traditional golf has not been great with that. But it is getting better. So the industry is catering to millennials. The goal is to make golf fun, young, and cool. I can't tell you how many country clubs and even daily fee courses have moon bounces, have paint night, have zip lines, have golf carts uh, and beverage carts looking like Rolls Royces. Cheesy, but cool. So to make golf fun, young, and cool, the connections with BuzzFeed, for example, Barstool Sports, Deadspin, Snapchat even is, is a strategy to acquire new golfers. Yeah. The beauty of it is, as I see it, we're getting GoPro involved. We're taking some subscription type models and applying it to golf a la Peloton. There's an Uber for golf. You look at Swing King, for example, a company in golf that has a fully automated video capability for a hole-in-one so it's not eyewitnesses anymore. You look at Tag Marshall, for example, has a pace of play system that feeds up golf. You're looking at Ricky Fowler, looks terrific in orange. Uh, Steph Curry is playing. Dude Perfect, my favorite, JT, Jessica Alban. There are rumors that Taylor Swift is addicted to the driving range. Once that happens and her 100 million followers across social channels, golf could really explode. You look at a millennial task force, it's not just people in the industry that's part of the industry's millennial task force. You're looking at members of Capital One. You're looking at Google, Twitter. They all want to reach the golf demographic because it is pretty coveted. And that's such a great point you make. I've also looked at this for years as golf first needs to get out of its own way and extend beyond itself and into other industries for inspiration to attract non-golf influencers and ambassadors. You mentioned Steph Curry and Taylor Swift, who could really blow golf up. And golf has struggled over the years to attract that natural, authentic, cool factor to it. But now you have so many professional athletes and celebrities who are so highly revered with massive social media followings. That is part of the secret sauce to really attract people to golf. Young basketball fans are going to say, if Steph Curry thinks golf is cool, then I'll give it a shot. Where if you're an inner city kid that doesn't have access to golf or doesn't know a single person who plays... And Sandy Cross, who I've had on the podcast, she uses this line when discussing the diversity and inclusion work she does for the PGA. In order to be one, you need to see one. You need to see someone playing golf that looks like you, sounds like you, dresses like you, has a similar cultural background to you. Someone who comes from where you come from and gives you the confidence and the desire to feel welcome and try golf for the first time. 
I believe this is really helping to change mindsets too. You're right. And, and the beauty of millennials, um, a lot of millennials are just conscious of the environments they're in. And I'm not talking about the greatness of an 18-hole walk with nature. I'm talking about millennials wanting to give back. And golf is known for that. And then millennials wanting to engage in, in healthy practices. So if we look at golf's longstanding history of giving back, the values of sportsmanship, respect, and integrity inherent to the game, it aligns with millennials who want to give back and billions of dollars are already raised through charity activities. That's an entry point for golf as well. So if we look at golf and charity, we're looking at I think it's about $3.9 billion that golf has given to charities. I think it's somewhere along the lines of 12 million people in America have participated in, we'll call it charity tournaments and outings, philanthropic events. The USGA has awarded about $40 million in grants to environmental and turf research. PGA Tour is almost at $3 billion annually. I'm sorry, $3 billion raised for charity. And if you look at golf, golf raises more money than, I believe it's the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, and NHL combined. And millennials love it. And millennials are also the key, you got to get them young, to overcoming the epidemic of sedentary ways and obesity in America. So if you look at the health benefits of golf, and I know we're jumping around here, but I want to get everything in. Walking 18 holes is about a three and a half mile run or a five mile walk. Burns up to 2,000 calories, 10,000 steps, which I believe is the, the daily guidelines for a healthy you. And it decreases the risk of more than 40 major chronic diseases. Does it get much better than that? Probably not positive impacts on cholesterol, body consumption, metabolism, decreases the risk of anxiety, depression, dementia. It benefits self-esteem and worth. And watching tour players has an inherent encouragement among fans to live healthier lives. All this is coming together and hitting millennials between the eyes in areas that mean the most to them. Charity and fitness or health, wellness are two of the biggest. I had on the podcast a couple episodes ago, Dr. Roger Hawks, who is with the Golf and Health Project, and he touched on a lot of the topics that you just mentioned, and you nailed the stats and the positive proof points that playing a round of golf has on our physical and mental well-being. All the things you just talked about, you, you really covered the last five episodes that we've done. Hey, I could have saved myself five times as much work. I, I guess I shouldn't have had them on as episode guest and just had you on here once here, Rich. Hey, I should have had you on first. <laughs> I'm a stat and I play the odds of data. Data doesn't lie. <laughs> it informs trend lines. Yeah, it certainly does. So, hey, I want to get your thoughts on this. These off-course experiences, or even on-course ones, because we know why Topgolf and DriveShack as their competitor are so successful, is the fact that they're not beholden to the throughput issue traditional golf courses are stuck with. I describe it as a tube of toothpaste on an 18-hole golf course where you can have four people tee off every 10 minutes or so only. Some players are slower than others, and the time of a round varies from about four to six hours. You can't have double the number of players tee off in half the time, so operators can't scale the green fee revenue model. It just doesn't work. Whereas Topgolf and Shack have 600 people simultaneously occupying 100 bays, hitting balls, and having a good time while they're eating and drinking. The reason I mention them is they've applied the Uber and Airbnb model 
underutilized or dormant assets that, that you can then monetize, tweak in a different way in order to leverage the value of the existing asset. And golf courses are starting to do this. I'm sure it's on your radar, Rich, what Troon Golf has done with Shots in the Night at Indian Wells Golf Course, where they're creating new demand and appealing to a market of non-golfers at night at a time when the golf course is closed. So Rich, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this and other off-course facilities or golf businesses that are taking advantage of assets that are sitting around there, unused most of the time, that they're now able to leverage and monetize. It's like airlines and hotel. Once the plane takes off and there's an empty seat, it's perished. Right. Same thing with room nights. You know, look at foot golf, for example. Foot golf has really taken off. Roberto and Laura Balestrini have done a, a great job infiltrating that as part of a culture that golf courses can consider to make incremental money. That's going well. You talked about night golf, glow golf, whatever you want to call it. That has its place. I can go on and on. We talk about the revenue stream that Swing King brings with the fully automated video hole-in-ones. And then look at golfers. They all have side games. So you look at Top Golf's World Golf Tour with virtual equipment. You look at fantasy sports. You look at the legalization of gambling in uh, several states across America. 63% of golfers play side games. That's why Swing King is so good. Hole-in-one, you win a Rolex, you win a trip to the Masters, you win $10,000, you win $100,000. Millennials love it. It's the largest group, one of the fastest growing segments, largest group of golfers. Fun is the number one reason they play. If foot golf, glow golf can infiltrate it, if we can have side games through apps, if we can have Match.com for golfers, man, revenues are going to go up. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And there are other industries too, besides golf that have struggled the last decade or so to crack the nut on how we are going to appeal to a younger audience because the customer we have is aging out and we're just not aligning our product, service, or experience offering with what a new and more diverse audience wants, which is something more engaging and social. I'm sure you've seen this too, Rich, and one that's really struggled with this is the casino gaming industry. And I know that the Nevada Gaming Commission is struggling with this also. They're looking for more interactive and immersive skills-based gaming where, in a way, you're betting on yourself rather than passively pumping coins into a slot machine, which millennials do not want to do. It doesn't align with their lifestyle at all. So it's dying. It's really exciting to see in golf, whether it's putting gamification or other golf-centric experiences that you can enjoy indoors. So do you have any thoughts about these massive growth opportunities to connect interactive golf games to what the casinos are so desperately looking to figure out? Well, wait, wait until Golf Zone, which is dominant in Korea with indoor simulators, wait until Golf Zone really attacks the U.S., connects it with betting devices, fantasy sports, mapping of 40,000 golf courses. That's going to really take off. But Colin, to pivot a little bit, we've been talking about millennials a lot. Let's not forget baby boomers and the generation that precedes them because they have the money. So we need parity or balance in golf. Too many baby boomers, too many AARP card members, uh, too many people collecting Social Security isn't good. Too many millennials isn't good. We need a balance across all generations to be successful. And golf recognizes that because of its welcoming invitation. And when we talk about welcoming invitation, let's remember that from a public golf standpoint, the median greens fee in the U.S. is about 35 bucks. Right. Eight out of 10 golfers, again, play public golf. And we can't pigeonhole ourselves into thinking about one generation. I dismissed the word savior. You used it. I didn't correct you. But there is no saving golf. It doesn't need to be saved because that parity will help golf thrive for a long time. 
I agree, Rich, although I wasn't trying to put it across that I believe there needs to be a savior. I was trying to say that some people in golf are looking for one. And I think that you and I both agree that this is not the case at all. But you make an interesting point, Rich, with especially the baby boomers as they age, even though, yes, there is an obesity epidemic combined with sedentary lifestyles, but generally people are living longer and healthier. Whereas even a generation earlier, most people between 65 and 85 wouldn't be able to make it around a golf course. As compared to when you and I get to that age, we want to get out there and move our bodies around and have some fun rather than sitting around doing nothing. So I think that's exciting too, not just for millennials, but also for us. The great opportunity to be more active and wanting to participate in age in a more vibrant way. So with that, do you think there's an opportunity for golf to help ensure that we stay connected with a sense of purpose as we get older? Oh, sure. I listened to a, a lecture by Alexis Abramson. Alexis is big on Generation G. Are we all familiar with Generation G? I am not. So why don't you explain that to me and our listeners here? All right. So this is really important for owners, operators, and others in the golf industry to pay attention to. So it's 45 to 65-year-old midlifers. There are more than 12,000 people in America who turn 45 daily. If you extrapolate, it's about 450,000 golfers annually. So Generation G, remember, 45 to 65-year-olds represents about 28% of the U.S. population in the golf market. It very well could be one of golf's most important targets. It's a sought-after demographic. They're in their peak earning years. They enjoy more discretionary income. They're in their prime to, I know it's morbid thinking, but receive inheritances. And they play more golf as they're about to be empty nesters. They also deal with more chronic pain and nagging conditions, but they want to age gracefully. And they're very health conscious. They desire to live forever because once you hit 50, not that you and I would know, there's a mortality factor. So they start playing more golfs with friends. They realize the health and wellness benefits. They play more golf with family members and they play more golf within their communities because at that age, they've earned the right to do so. They also have more time in their hands. So a lot of them have climbed the corporate ladder. So they play more charity golf tournaments in any other age bracket. And again, they're health obsessed. And that is a generation that people need to pay attention to. If you're in the golf industry, whether you're an OEM, whether you're in the hospitality or service industry, they have a lot of money. They're getting more time in their hands. They're living life to their fullest because they don't have much more time to live. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so do not ignore Generation G. Do not pay too much attention to millennials. They kind of need equal treatment. Well, I realize now that I'm right smack dab in the middle there of Generation G, and I didn't even know what it was before. So I'm very bullish on that, but what you said made me a bit sad about the morbidity aspect of your response. But I know that you balanced that out with the positives with Generation G. Thanks for your reference there to Alexis Abramson. And I'll make sure in the episode show notes to include a link so that our listeners can check out her work that you just talked about. Age is just a state of mind. Let's remember that. I completely agree. I still try to convince myself sometimes that I'm still 19 years old, but yeah, I'm certainly not able to dunk anymore. I don't even think I can touch the rim anymore, but in my mind, I can still dunk. <laughs> I, I think the key is, Colin, at any age, golf enriches lives. If we maintain that motivation, both folks in the industry and folks adjacent to the industry, promoting motivation that golfers have all the tools to get better and better and better, 
And yeah, it's difficult, but the reality of difficulty may be a little overblown compared to the anticipation of difficulty. There are so many golfers who pick up a club for the first time, just like millennials, one in four claim their hook after picking up for the first time, aided by technology, aided by the walk in the park, being one with nature. They're destined to play better. The better you play, the better you score. The better you score, the more you play. And that's the definition of sustainability. It's not just the eco-conscious angle to golf. Absolutely. The triple bottom line, again, of that sustainability platform, environmental, economic, and social, all three of those. So, hey, to finish up with you here, Rich, and thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate and enjoy our conversation, as always. But I wanted to talk about this, because you mentioned earlier about the older generation and older golfers, even playing golf for the first time, being able to get out there with their friends. And this is critically important. As you know, we've never been more technologically connected, digitally connected, than we are at this point in human history. But also on the other side, the paradox to that is, in many cases, people have never felt more isolated and lonely. Not that I want to have this episode end on a downer, but one real positive benefit of golf, that is golf as a social sport, it connects us. Whether it's in a foursome where we play together or even something bigger than that, with the volunteerism, philanthropic and charity component. That's one thing I really love about the game. I realize this with older people, and I see my dad going through this right now. The isolation and loneliness seniors suffer from as their good friends pass on leads to depression, anxiety, and despair. So having the opportunity to reconnect with people through golf at any age is amazing. I don't know of any other sport that has the ability to do this like golf does. It's the anti-hermit remedy. Yeah. It's a medicine for being anti-hermit. It's a game, like you mentioned earlier, you can play until you're 100 or even older. I hope we reach that. It's also a game where you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about yourselves. It's the ultimate motivator to get healthy, to be with people, and not be that couch potato when you reach a certain age where a lot of people just throw in the towel. That's a great point, Rich. We have to keep moving our bodies around. It's good for us physically, and it's good for our minds. Without question, they are connected. I think you and I are around the same age, Rich, so let's make a point. We haven't played a round together yet, so I hope you can tolerate my 20 handicap. But let's make a pact right now, if you're up for it, on our 75th birthday year. And also, if you have the good fortune of making it to 100, we'll play a round together. How's that sound? Well, 75th birthday is 50 years from now for me, so tee it up. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Hey, before I let you go here, Rich, please let our listeners know where they can learn more about all the great things you are doing with Buffalo Agency. Sure. So it's, it's pretty simple. Buffalo, we'll call it www dot buffalo.agency no.com buffalo.agency my email address just like golfers should be we're attached to our phones is rkatz at buffalo.agency rkatz at buffalo.agency i'd love to share insights with people in and outside golf it's the game we love and it's the game that being part of the industry we need to leave in a better place than we found it so thanks colin for having me Look forward to speaking uh, with your listeners, and hopefully I was able to give some nuggets to help them consume kind of the inside scoop and the state of golf in the U.S. You certainly did, Rich, and thanks for that. There were nuggets of wisdom abound in our conversation here today. And as I always do, I will include everything Rich has mentioned in the show notes. In his bio that you can click on through our show page, I will include Rich's email address there, along with more about Buffalo Agency. And we'll leave it at that. So, Rich Katz? founder and principal of Buffalo Agency. Hey, Rich, again, thank you for your time. And I look forward to seeing you again in person very soon, sir. It was a pleasure, Colin. Have a great evening. All right. Thanks, you too. Bye for now. Right on. Bye-bye.
So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rich Katz, who is the founder and principal of Buffalo Agency. I'd love to hear what you found interesting and useful in this episode. So please share your thoughts by emailing me at colin at modgolfpodcast.com. I promise to get back to you. If you'd like to learn more about the work Buffalo Agency and Rich passionately engage in on behalf of the golf industry, go to our episode show page where we've included links and photos to provide you with additional content. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Nextlinks for making the Mod Golf Podcast happen. And I also want to send a big thanks to our newest sponsor, Golf Genius Software. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest influencers and innovators. Are you a golf course owner or operator struggling with the complexities of running tournaments? Do you want to spend less time running them while increasing revenue and profit margins? Check out our friends at Golf Genius to learn how they can help make the magic happen at golfgenius.com. Please join me next time when I speak with Adam Hike, who is the CEO of Youth on Course. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.